Well, again, welcome to you uh, here at Rock Hill. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew, Matthew chapter 21, kind of a multi-year walk through the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21, we'll be completing this chapter today. And just to kind of catch you up to speed, the series is called When Jesus Comes to Town. And uh, Matthew, the gospel writer, writes uh, in the, really the, the first ministerial years of Jesus' life, it takes him about 20 chapters And then he comes to this place where the last seven and a half chapters of the Gospel of Matthew are centered around the last week of Jesus. Now think about this. The the time that he has spent on three years of ministry is about 20 chapters, but then one week of the life of Jesus is encapsulated in seven and a half chapters. And so when you think about the proportion that, that Matthew is giving attention to, this season in the life of Jesus is significant. You, you remember that on Palm Sunday, we actually were in the text where Jesus rides into town on a donkey, and they cry out from a particular psalm that this is Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they laid palm branches down and their jackets and clothes down. And Jesus walked uh, on that, sat on that donkey. It's the the first time we see him riding on anything like this. He he rides on that donkey into town. He goes into the temple and there's a sense of celebration. Everybody wants to throw a party. But yet in our text, we understand that Jesus really isn't in a party mood. He has a sense of urgency. He's almost in a mood of judgment. Jesus is keenly aware of what's going to take place on the Friday. He knows everybody's throwing a party on Monday, but he knows what's coming on Friday. And Jesus comes into the temple. You you remember what happens. He comes into the temple on Monday, and he immediately sees money changers and people taking advantage, extorting individuals who are just there to worship the Lord, and he turns over the tables He's in the court of Gentiles, which was supposed to be open to all those who were seeking after Yahweh. And he invites the blind, and he invites the lame. He heals them and says, hey, listen, you've made my court, a, a, my house a den of robbers, but I'm, it should be a house of prayer. And so Jesus turns over tables, and then he, he heads off to, to go stay the night outside of town. And he, as he's coming back in on Tuesday, he sees a fig tree that, that gave the appearance of having fruit, but it just had leaves. And so he curses that fig tree. Again, doing an enacted parable, a judgment on the religious leaders of the day. And, and that fig tree immediately dies and withers and does not bear any fruit. And he, he begins to parallel that to the religious leaders who claim to have fruit but have none at all. And so then Jesus is now teaching in the temple. He's interrupted in our, in our prior passage here. He's, he's interrupted while he's teaching. And they, they ask him, which we asked this question last week, who do you, who do you think you are? Who, who gave you this authority? Who, who put you in the seat of teacher? That's what the religious leaders and chief elders were curious about. And so Jesus has already brought out of them the fact that that he has the authority but now now he's going to give a parable a story now we've always described parables of having you know earthly context but a heavenly meaning and and yet in this parable there's not just this oh that makes me feel nice and oh isn't that sweet this parable is filled with judgment towards the religious leaders 
But what if I told you today that while this parable was pinpointed to the religious leaders, it doesn't just have application for them, it actually has application for us. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to start in verse 33. We're going to put it on the screen if you don't have your Bibles, but if you're there, will you say word? Listen, Jesus says, to another parable. He says, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. He, he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. When the time had come to harvest fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to collect the fruit. The farmers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent other servants more than the first group, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, and they will respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? The religious leaders responded. He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give his fruit at the harvest. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they knew he was speaking about them. Although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the people regarded him as... A prophet. The first thing we see in our text, there's three things today, but the first thing we see in our text is that God is extremely generous. God is extremely generous. There's three characters that we find in the first verse, verse 33 of our text. There's the landowner, and the landowner here is what you would expect. He owns the land. In this parable, I don't want to come out too fast on this, but God, you need to know that God is represented as the landowner. He's the one that owns everything. He's the one who's done all the work in this passage, and he's the one that is owed and due the harvest of fruit of which the tenant farmers are supposed to yield. Now, the tenant farmers, uh, that's the, another group here. The tenant farmers are what you would expect. They don't own the land, but they're on the land to work the land, to give a harvest and to pay the landowner what he is due. It would be similar in our day and age. When you own, if you own a house that you rent out, you're the landowner, and then you have tenants or renters in that home, and they are to pay rent to the landowner. When we first got married, we were so poor, we couldn't, we were poor, we couldn't afford the other O and the R. And so what did we do? We, we couldn't afford a house, and so we rented uh, a, an apartment, but it really wasn't an apartment. It was like a, 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 it was just a long row of duplexes, and so we lived in that for a long time, and we, we, we just didn't have the, 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 the stability at that time early in marriage to, I mean, to be able to afford anything else. I mean, listen, my wife drove at like an 80s uh, 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 Ford Taurus. They don't make those cars anymore. There's a reason, right? The horn would go off randomly. 
I drove a, a Saturn Ion. I mean, Saturn, yeah, Saturn uh, Ion. I mean, you look, you, they, it's plastic. It was a plastic car. I remember going with, uh, this is not, no, this is free. I remember going to a hospital visit with some deacons when I was first pastor. And we got back and they said, Pastor, we love you. We'll never ride in that car with you ever again. I said, why not, Mr. Persky? Why not, Mr. Floyd? They said, because the whole entire car shook anytime I got over 50 miles an hour. They weren't wrong. But we, were, we, we did not have the means to afford a home. And so you know the difference between an owner and a renter. An owner is the one that's due the rent. The renter can't make the determination on when the rent can be paid. The, the renter can come and say, can we paint these walls? And the owner can say yes or no. But typically they say, no, you can't paint the walls. Hey, can we, can we uh, put in a pool? No, we, you, I, we're not putting in a pool because I'm the owner and I'd have to pay for that. But, but we loved it as renters whenever taxes came due. And we were able to say, hey, if we don't own it, you have to pay the tax. And so we, we love this kind of scenario, but, but we understand the difference. But here, here they're tenant farmers over the third character in the story, and it's over a vineyard. Now, we don't really catch it because we, we don't, I don't think, uh, really dig into the Old Testament like they would have dug into the Old Testament. But in Isaiah chapter 5, the people of God are described as a vineyard. If you just read the first five verses even of Isaiah chapter 5, you see the people of God are described as a vineyard. And in that text, you see that God has planted them, God has dug a wine press for them, God has, God has protected them, and, and God is really taking care of all the things to make them thrive or allow them to thrive. And God even says in verse 4 of Isaiah 5, what else, what else could I have done for you? And the result in Isaiah 5 is that they squander it. In fact, God says, I'm going to remove all the protection I've given to you. And it actually serves as a prophecy because eventually the people of Babylon wipe out, and actually don't wipe all of them out, but they take out a huge remnant of the people of Israel because they refused to yield its fruit. God is extremely generous. Look what he does in this text. He planted them. Who planted them? They didn't plant them. The landowner, God, plants them. He put a fence around them. That means he's trying to protect them. He's putting, he's putting guardrails around them to keep out the, the wild game or other invaders from taking them out. Look what he does. He, he digs a wine press. Well, what does that mean? It means that instead of having to travel far to make the wine, they were able to do it right there, he puts up a watchtower. Why does a watchtower matter? A watchtower matters because they could see from a distance those who were going to take them out. Who did all of that? The landowner did it. God did it all. You see how generous he is? We get ourselves into all kinds of problems because we forget the extreme generosity of God. He did the work. The tenant farmers only had to tend to the vineyard and let it produce its fruit and then pay back to the landowner what is his rightful due. And yet, that didn't happen. The landowner, God, is extremely generous. So look what happens in verse 34. When the time came for harvest, he sent his servants 
to collect his fruit. So the picture is that the landowner has these individuals who serve for him, serve him, and they're coming just to, hey, we're here now to collect that which is rightfully his. Uh, we, we need you to, to pay up. We need you to, to give us what is rightfully his. But look what happens in verse 35. It says the farmers took his servants, they beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. I, I don't know if you've ever had a landowner knock on your door and say, hey, your bill is due. And you go, the best scenario here is for me to take you out. Hey, you owe, you owe your rent. No, I don't. You owe your life. I mean, this is what, like, that doesn't make any rational sense. And, and yet, this is the story that Jesus is giving because there's a landowner who's done all the work, who's extremely generous, and he's given them all these things. He's planted them. He's put a fence around them. He's dug a wine press for them. He's even put a watchtower in. And he comes just to get the yield of his harvest, and they go, your, your servants are going to die. Now, I don't know about you, but as a, as a landowner, you might go, shouldn't he have recognized this? Like, it would make sense. Hey, your, your, your eyes are a little bit more, like you've got a bruise. How did that bruise happen? It's like, well, about that. And where's the other two guys that I sent with you? Yeah, one of them got killed, another got stoned. So I don't know, but I'm just glad I got beaten. I mean, this is just what I'm happy for. They, they have taken these individuals, the landowner knows this, and so how does he respond to their beating, killing, and stoning? Look at verse 36. Again, he sent other servants. He sends more servants. Do you see the extreme generosity of God? Now, let me, let me just bridge this for you for a second. God has over and over and over in the Old Testament sent prophet after prophet after messenger after messenger after servant after servant to the people of God to call them to repentance. And the typical response from them was to not repent but to beat them, to stone them, and to kill them. This is how the people of God have responded to the prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, he was sawed in two. And not one of those cute magic tricks, like, whoa. No, like literally sawed in two. Okay. Jeremiah. Jeremiah was stoned, beaten, stoned, and killed. I mean, this is just what his life was like. I, I think of... I think of the guy, uh, Ezekiel. You know, Ezekiel, he, he preached a sermon against the idols of the day. And they didn't like the sermon. So because they didn't like the sermon, they killed him. Look, I get an email when you don't like the sermon. And I go, oh, like I, I worked like a lot on that. And you just... But thank you for just sending an email. I mean, just, just, just imagine, after this sermon, you go, that, that was not good. And you get a couple of your buddies, and you go, I think we should kill them. I mean, this is what they did. 
Micaiah in 1 Kings 22, you'll you love this story. He, he, he preaches, and they didn't like it, so they punched him in the face. You ever been punched in the face? I mean, if you'd like to, we have a group that will line up, and they'll happily achieve that for you today. But that wasn't funny, I know. They punched him in the face. Amos was, was stoned. He was actually beaten with a wooden stick. And then Habakkuk, he was put in exile. So listen, of all the jobs in the Old Testament that you might want to have, you think, what, what job would I want to have in the Old Testament? Not a prophet. Not a prophet. Because if you did your job well as a prophet, you were sawed in two, you were stoned, you were beaten with a stick, you, you were punched in the face, and you died. Like, that's your job. And what does... The father, what does a landowner do over and over and over? He sends more servants. Do you see the generosity of God? Do you see the kindness and the patience of God? Oh, I'm so grateful God is patient. I'm aware of God's patience with me when I'm impatient. I'm aware of God's patience with me when I'm impatient. I was at the coffee shop the other day in Athens, Texas, and I'd ordered a coffee, and it shouldn't be difficult to get my coffee. I'm so grateful that I have a, a little phone that can pre-order my drinks so that I don't have to talk to nobody when I go in now. It's like I'm wearing a mask. I just walk in and go, there's my name, what's up, and let's go, right? Thank you, barista. And I made this order thinking, I'm going to make this quick, let's go, I'm going to go in and out, I don't want to talk to anybody, I don't want to see anybody, I just want to be anonymous and go get my little coffee and then go out and burn my tongue. That's what I want to do. And I sat there and I was like, walked in, I was like, well, my coffee's not there, that seems odd, it just, just that's all you got to do. Just a little wrist action in the cup and let's, I'll go my way. And I'm sitting there and I'm sitting there and I'm sitting there going, this is weird, and I'm now going to leave a review. I'm going to take a picture of my table with no coffee and get a one star and say, this is my coffee I ordered, right? This is what I, the, the righteous, anybody else been there? I'm there. I'm there again right now. And I went up to the barista and said, ma'am, I ordered my coffee on my phone, and she said, yeah, you ordered that in Tyler." gotten older maybe my yeah yeah yeah. so this is awkward right and she says listen it happens all the time I'll make you another cup they'll discard that one if they've already thrown it away I'll make you another cup I'm way more aware of the patience of God when I'm impatient Romans 2 4 says oh it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance God sent Servant after servant, prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger, all to cry out to the people of God to repent and to turn and to look again to the Messiah who was coming. And what did they do? They did the same. But watch the extreme generosity of God because it gets better We've already read it, but look at verse 37. Finally, what does he do? Does he send an army? I would. Militia? Let's go. He sends his son. Now, I don't, I, I hope 
the gospel bells are ringing. The landowner has sent servants. They've removed all of them. And so he doesn't send a militia. He doesn't send an army. He now sends his son. And he says, surely they'll listen to my son. Surely they'll respond to my son coming. Surely because my son has come, they'll say, this is really serious. And, and think about this, friends. Who, who is he referring to? Okay, when in doubt, in church, vote Jesus, right? The Father has sent messenger after messenger, and now he has sent his son, and surely they'll listen to the son of David, the son of God. Surely, surely they'll listen to him. Surely they'll respect my son. And what do they do? When the tenant farmer saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. God is extremely generous to the point that he has sent messenger after messenger. He has now sent his son, and man is increasingly stubborn. Second point. God is extremely generous. Man is increasingly stubborn. They see that messenger after messenger has come. They've heard the news, but now he sent his son. They go, oh, I know how we'll fix this. We'll make it worse. By the way, this is exactly what sin does. You know why they wanted to take out the son? They wanted his inheritance. You see it? They want the power. They want the authority. They want to be the ones that everybody looks to. Man, over time, is increasingly stubborn. We are blind, what sin says, blind to the, our own deceitfulness of our sin. See, see, we're so blind, we're blind to the consequences of our sin. I, I mean, just think, just, just for a second, just, just for a second, the, the person who binge drinks, they, they know that it's going to result at a kneeling at the porcelain throne. And they will spend a miserable amount of time removing all the excess that's inside of them. They'll taste it again. It doesn't taste better coming out the second time. And, and they'll go, I'm never doing that again. And the next night, they do it again. Why? Sin blinds the eyes from the consequences. It lies to you thinking, oh, that will make you feel good. It'll wipe away the problems. We, but that, may, that illustration may not apply to 98% of you. But this one might. I, I know that the speed limit says something, but it's merely a suggestion. Now, I'm not wanting you to drive like in judgment and shame. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying, we, we are, most of us, us, I'm not saying you, us, put, push the limit on the speed limit. Okay, now I'm feeling judged. <laughs> and then when we get caught, they go, are you in a hurry? Is there an emergency? No, I ordered my coffee in Tyler, and I'm in Athens. <laughs> Let's get there. It's getting cold. <laughs> 
sin so blinds us from the consequences of the sin. And so in their minds, we got a great idea. We'll take the son out. We'll get all of his inheritance. That's how this works, right? No. But man is increasingly stubborn. Jesus knows what's going to happen on Friday. Jesus knows exactly what's going to The religious leaders are going to take him out on Friday, thinking they have spiked the ball. But in reality, they have not won. Listen, friends, God, God gives us his best, even though we've given him our worst. Look at verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what do these farmers, what, what, what should he do with these farmers? So, so Jesus says, hey, hey guys, what, what, what should he do with these tenant farmers? And I don't know if they're gritting their teeth. I don't know if they're angry about this, but they say, we, oh, he's got to completely destroy them. Like he's got to nuke them. And then he'll lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. They know the conclusion. They, they understand that Jesus doesn't necessarily have to judge them in this moment. They're judging themselves. Hey, you're the tenant farmers. You're the ones that have squandered the vineyard. You've, you've killed, you've beaten, you've stoned all of the servants that I've sent. And then I sent my son. You're going to kill him too. But what should God do with them, Jesus says? What should the landowner do with them, religious leaders? And they go, he should totally wipe them out. That's what he should do. And he would be completely just and righteous to do it. But because of their increasingly stubborn hearts, Jesus then pushes them to another point in the parable. Jesus now takes the next step of the application of what's happening here. And you'd think he'd continue down this path of tenants and landowners, but he, he shifts gears on them in this next portion. Because Jesus is the one upon whom you should build your life. Jesus is the one to build your life upon. So he transitions a bit. He goes away from the vineyard from Isaiah 5. He goes now to a cornerstone, and he mentions this little subtext. If you, and in your Bible, it should have a, a footnote maybe, and it's from Psalm 118. Now, you may not remember Psalm 118, but Psalm 118 is a part of the halal, which were the psalms that were sung during the Passover, which they've already sung at the coming in of Jesus at Palm Sunday. So when Jesus has come into town, they are now have sung the song. It's a familiar psalm. It was a psalm they would have been aware of. It had been fresh on their lips. And so Jesus simply quotes it to them and says, hey, remember, have you, you read in the scriptures, which you always, hey, don't you remember, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. He's saying, hey, you've built all of your life on this temple. You've built all of your life on the, the routines and the rhythms and the laws in this building, but I need you to look again at the cornerstone, and I am that cornerstone. The I am is here. I am he who has come. I'm the one you've been waiting for. You've been building your life up. You've been climbing a ladder. That ladder is against the wrong building. You need to come down the ladder, repent, and you need to now trust in the cornerstone. Now, if you ever go to Israel, when we go in, in February, you see this. The cornerstone, is it literally, they have them. They're, they're bigger. I don't build buildings. You don't want me to build buildings. You don't want me to swing a hammer. I hit other things, not the nail. This is my life. I build sermons. I sit for a living. Soft hands. But Jesus is saying, 
the cornerstone was the most important piece of the building. If you got that wrong, the whole building falls. And Jesus says, you've built your whole life on the wrong thing. You've rejected it. And so he says, I'm, I'm telling you, the kingdom, he says in verse 43, the kingdom is actually going to be taken away from you. What, what's, he, what's he saying? He, he's saying, hey, all of this system, you, you've been, you think the temple is a physical structure. I'm going to put the temple in your heart. I'm removing you as the avenue of which the kingdom of God is established. And now it's going to be given through me. This is why he says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. And then he gives us the commission, meaning that we're, we're not partnering with him on this mission to go and make disciples. He's going to take it away from them, the religious leaders, and he's going to give it to people producing its fruit. He says, whoever falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. So if you... And if you try to overtake this, you're going to be broken. And, and whoever it falls on, it will shatter him. What, what is Jesus saying? He saying, I'm trying to break up the system. And I'm bringing in the new reign of the kingdom of God. And it's through this cornerstone. Christ, that's why we sang it, Christ alone is the cornerstone. He's the one you're to build your life upon. And they, they saw this. Jesus is calling them to repent. Jesus is inviting them to understand the reality of the refusal to submit to the ways of the Lord. And, and look, we, we know they, they made the connection, so it's not an assumption. Look at the, look at the connection in verse 45. They say they, they, knew, they knew he was speaking about them. You see that? They knew. There was, there was no up for, well, I wonder what he's talking about. They knew. You, you, ever, you ever heard a sermon and you walk away going, how did he know what was going on in our life? And then you walk up to that preacher and go, how did you know what was going, in, going on in my life? I, I kid you not, 99.9% .9 of the time, I don't know what's going on in your life. I, I, I don't. I don't read your mail. I don't have an AI bot who's sending me every text message you send. Could you imagine? I generally, when preaching and not thinking about your the Holy Spirit is the one who's convicting your heart and instructing you and calling you to repent. That's what's happening. That's why the preaching so important for us to hear. Somebody speaking into our life. They knew it was about them. They knew, hey, he's talking about us. And when that happens, that's the Holy Spirit convicting us. And what should be our response? It should be to bend our knee and submit and say, oh, you're the cornerstone. You're the one that we're to give our life to. You're the one that we're to surrender to. We're the one to build our life upon, not upon all these other things that we've made it. Oh, Lord, how did you know what was going on in our life? And he says, I just know I'm calling you to repentance. But that's not what they did. Look what they did. They were still trying to find a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowds. What will the crowds say if we arrest him right here? They'll call us for what we really are, frauds. They'll put their fingers in our chest and say, how dare you? We've got to find another way. 
So a couple of a couple of application points, I think, for us is is the first thing is is have you have you embraced the extreme generosity of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? That, that through Jesus, because of his sacrifice on the cross for you, you can be saved. Have you, have you realized what the Father has done? He, he sent messenger after messenger after messenger, and then he sent his own son. And then, friend, watch this. Not only has he sent us his son, but he sent us his word. And from his word, we get to know him. And yet, so often we'll go, yeah, not right now. Maybe... Maybe later. Do you see the extreme generosity of our Jesus who loved us in such a way that he made a way for us to be saved? Oh, friend, if you've not trusted in Christ, oh, I hope this lands on your lap like a pile of bricks of kindness. The Lord is saying, repent today and trust in me. But, but then I think there's another way this lands. Last night, I, I made a plan for this next week. You ever, you ever do that? I like to know what I'm going to do next week. Three major things and then like a hundred minor things. My tendency is to do all the minor things, not the major things. But, but at three major things that I want to accomplish this week and then a bunch of little things that need to be accomplished as well. I just sat down and planned it. And the Lord quickened my spirit. He said, oh, you made plans. Good. You have no idea what's going to happen this week, Michael. We live in a day of uncertainty. Like, what, what's going to happen this week? I, I don't know. I, I really don't. I can make plans and have intended to do those things. We, we make all kinds of plans. We make all kinds of provisions to keep us safe. You can make all kinds of plans, but the only guaranteed thing is three, you get three things. You're born, that's a guarantee. You already check that box. Taxes, that happens, hello. And then death, that's the guarantees you have in life. In uncertainty, we might want to put our trust in our plans. In our uncertainty, we might want to put our hope in our government in our uncertainty, we might want to put our hope in our bank account. We might want to put our hope in our reputation. We might want to put our hope in our family. We might want to put our hope in a whole myriad of things. But friend, all of them are buckets with a hole in it. Because our hope is not in those things. Our hope is to be in Christ. And so many of us have been living in fear and anxiety about uncertainty of the days ahead. And Jesus says, I will hold you fast. So some of us in this room, we know Christ, but we like our plans better than we like his ways. We still think we know better. And all of that is just because we're increasingly stubborn. God is extremely generous. Man is increasingly stubborn. Jesus is the one you should build your life on. Let's pray. Father, we've come. and You are the one who sent prophet after prophet over and over. Messengers to tell us 
and warn us of the coming Messiah and and Jesus was sent. Jesus, you came and you lived the life that we could not live. You died the death we deserved to die. You were buried, you were raised, you ascended into heaven. You're seated at the right hand of the Father, and Jesus, one day you're going to return. But in the meantime, Jesus, we have the spirit of the living God inside of us. May we recognize the extreme generosity of the heart of God. Spirit, help us and convict those in this room that do not and have not trusted in you with their life. That they would confess and repent and believe in Jesus alone. And Lord, for those of us who've, who've just placed our hope and trust in a myriad of things, would we just pause and just confess to the Lord that and say, Lord, I, I want to I repent of that. Spirit, may we not leave from here until we've done that. We're asking this in the powerful name of Jesus.